How many of you like to read? Preaching to the right crowd tonight. This is good. I like to read too. Part of my uh, reading regimen includes biographies. They, uh, they're not the main uh, stay of my reading, but I do make time to fit them in. At least a couple a year. I'd, I'd prefer to read four a year, but I don't always make that. But at least a couple of year, a couple of biographies a year. And the reason that I read biographies is because it allows me to to experience what God has done and is doing through His people, to see what men and women of faith have gone through through the years as they have tried to work out their salvation with fear and trembling as well. On the back of your handout, I've given you a, a few of of some of my favorite biographies. You'll notice uh, Ian Murray's name appears there. Sell your shirt, as Pastor Jerry used to say, and buy a book written by Ian Murray. I think he's one of the one of the premier biographers, really, of our day. And uh, he has taken and, and undertaken biographies of some very uh, important men. Those uh, biographies there of Jonathan Edwards and D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, I just gave you the second volume of that. It's actually a two-volume set, both of which are worthy of working your way through. Ian Murray doesn't write short biographies, by the way. He writes fat biographies, you know, the kind that uh, take up a lot of room on your nightstand. That's the kind of biography he writes. Well, tonight we're looking at uh, Hebrews 11, entitled this, The Hall of Faith. And as we go through this chapter together, we're going to uh, be reminded of many, many uh, people, men and women, uh, some of whom are named and some of whom remain unnamed, known only to God, and how they have walked with Him through the years. And and the point of the chapter, let me just give you this right up front, the point of the chapter is that the the audience to whom this author is writing, this this, uh, Jewish Christian church, located, I believe, somewhere in Palestine in the first century, just prior to the fall of Jerusalem, is under tremendous pressure. We saw that last time, didn't we? Persecution is upon them and has been upon them. And there is a tendency, has been a tendency among them to wilt, to fall back from their commitment to Christ, to to try to drag along some of the old in blending it with the new in order to relieve the pressure, in order to make themselves less uh, different than those around them, in order to minimize the the reasons for their persecution. And the author here, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, says you cannot do this. When you have come to Jesus Christ, there's no going back. There's nothing to return to. And though you may not see it fully fulfilled in your lifetime, you must still walk by faith. And so he marshals here in chapter 11 from the history of Israel, from the Old Testament and beyond, Uh, a litany of those who walked by faith, showing to these people and to us that this is not something radical and and new that he's calling you to, but it is indeed what it means to be a follower of God. A little over a year ago, uh, I had the opportunity to uh, visit the British Museum. And it was a tremendous uh, opportunity. I would love to go again. As you walk into the British Museum and and the British Museum was built, really, to house the treasures of the British Empire. You know, they used to say the sun never sets on the British Empire. It was literally a global empire. 
And by virtue of that global empire, they came into their possession treasures of antiquity from all over the world. And so they were shipped back to London and they had to build this massive building that was later added on to with other galleries in order to house these treasures of antiquity. And when we visited the British Museum and you walk in, it's like walking through this, this, uh, these massive halls with these huge columns and, and everywhere around you is history and it's just screaming at you, although it is very silent. You're walking along and there's the Rosetta Stone discovered by Napoleon's army, whereby through the use of that stone where they had inscription in three different languages, Greek, uh, Coptic, Egyptian Coptic, and ancient Egyptian hieroglyphics, they were able to break, knowing Greek and working backwards, they were able to break through the Egyptian hieroglyphics and then begin to read the inscriptions in the pyramids. Tremendous piece of antiquity standing there. You're walking along, you go through another room, and there's all these busts of the, of the Caesars there. And you're kind of walking down there. They're watching you as you walk down the, you know, through the gallery. Mummies drawn from, some, from the ancient pharaoh's tombs. Everywhere you go, you're surrounded by history. Well, as we go through this chapter, we're surrounded by history as well. And so there's much we can learn from it. So tonight we're going to go through this chapter together, all 40 verses, and we have 55 minutes or so to do that, so we're going to, we're going to have to move through it, but uh, I'm, it's just going to, I want to do it in a big package because I, I don't want to get bogged down in individual details. The writer expects you to know the stories behind the, the people that he'll bring forward, and he's bringing forward various incidences out of their lives to prove his point. The point that he is making all along. And, and the point is that the obedience of faith and the endurance that it brings sustains one in the face of difficulty, delay, and even death. It's all about the endurance of faith. And let me show you this, uh, I think, pretty vividly. If you look at the end of chapter 10, and you look at verse 36... Beginning in verse 32, he's been talking about the sufferings that they've been enduring. But when he gets to verse 36, he said, For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. And then you go all the way over to chapter 12, verse 1. And he says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, that is, the people he's just spoken of in chapter 11. Let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with what? Endurance, the race that is set before us. Like bookends, endurance is set on either side of chapter 11. Chapter 11 is all about the endurance of faith. The endurance of faith. So tonight, as we go through this chapter, we're going to very briefly look at three aspects of faith so that we will endure in spite of hardship and suffering that may presently be in your life or may come into your life. We spoke this morning about some of the, um, some of the plans, some of the, the, the direction of where we're going. And it's admittedly bold and even brash in, I believe, a godly sort of way. But it's going to bring us into collision with our culture in a way that we've not yet experienced here in this fellowship. And so endurance of faith is going to be important to us. 
It's going to be easy uh, to want to quit. There will be times of discouragement, times of fatigue, times of setback. And it will, and there will, it will come to us a, a, a temptation to quit. But we must not quit. We must take the lesson of endurance here in Hebrews 11 and apply it. So, three aspects of faith. I have them for you here on your handout. The first aspect is the essence of faith declared. Verses 1 and 3, the essence of faith declared. Now, what we have here in verses 1 through 3 is not really a definition of faith per se, but a description of what faith does. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the men of old gained approval. By faith we understand the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen is not made out of things which are visible. The essence of faith here, he declares for us, and, and he really says, in, he gives us three ways to look at it here in these verses. He says first that it produces endurance. That's what his, his thesis is in verse 1. It's all about producing of endurance. You see that? It's, a, it's an assurance, he says, of things hoped for. It, it goes forward to future things, things that are not here yet, but things that we hope to be here. Now, not hope in the sense that we're wishing, you know, that, uh, gee, I, I, oh, I hope, I hope, I hope that I get a, you know, a new car for my birthday. That would, be a, that would not be the right kind of uh, hoping that he's talking about here. He's talking about a hope that is, that is based upon a settled assurance of who God is and his character. And he says that it gives us an assurance. There, it's, a, it's a settledness in our mind. We're not tossed to and, ro- and fro, but we are absolutely assured or settled of that which we are looking forward to. It's a future view of faith. Beyond that, he says, it's the conviction of things not seen. That is, things not visible to the human eye. Again, it's looking out and saying, I am confident it's coming. I'm confident it's coming. And this confidence is what produces endurance. The confidence in knowing that what God has promised is indeed to come true. Now, what kind of things would we hope for? What would would we be assured of with regard to our relationship with God through Christ? Well, for us, it would be things like His return, right? That indeed, as he rose bodily, as the angels told those disciples there in, in Acts 1, he's going to return in the same way, right? So we have an assurance, a, an assured, settled conviction and hope of the bodily return of Jesus Christ. We have an assured and settled hope of our final glorification. That this is not all there is. Good as it is that we have been rescued from the slavery of sin, right? And, and transferred to the kingdom of our blessed Son. It's still not over here. There is a glorification to come. And when, when the power of sin and the presence of sin will be completely done away with in our lives, we look forward to our glorification and we have a settled hope about that. That we are entering into heaven's rest. There is a place for us, right? John 14, 1 to 3, Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you and I will return and take you there. That's part of our settled hope. Jesus' high priestly ministry as the writer to the Hebrews has outlined. 
that Jesus Christ is at the right hand of the Father, interceding on our behalf even now. That's our hope. That our sin has been completely dealt with. There is no residual. There is, there is nothing hanging on to us with regard to sin. It has been completely atoned for in Christ. That's our hope. That's our hope. And it is these future aspects that have yet to be revealed to us that we place our firm hope in that give us the endurance to persevere. Our endurance is not based on this wishful notion, but upon this firm and settled conviction that in Christ Jesus, all of these things are now ours. Beyond that, he tells us in verse 2 that that the essence of faith faith is observable. It can be seen. Notice again in ver- what he says here, verse 2, For by it the men of old gained approval. What he's saying is that, is that faith is observable. Who do they gain approval from? The approval here, I believe in context, is from those who are watching them. That's what he's talking about. It is not that I have faith and it's hidden in my heart and nobody can see it. No, it's just the opposite. I have faith and you can see it. It manifests itself. We are going to look at example after example here in just a moment of those whose faith could be seen. Could be seen. And so the faith that endures, the faith that that carries you through is a faith that can be seen. It's not this hidden inside my heart conviction, but it is something that manifests itself and shows itself out in my life. These people that we're going to look at beginning in verse 4 with Abel, right? And following on through these these men these women patiently endured patiently endured throughout their life and many of them died without ever seeing the fulfillment of that which they were waiting for some did indeed find the fulfillment but many died waiting yet it was observable in their life nonetheless they did not grow discouraged they did not fall by the wayside but they continue to persevere. Their faith was observable. The third essence of faith that he declares for us here in verse 3 is that it's faith built on the Word of God. Do you see that? Verse 3, By faith we understand the worlds were prepared by the Word of God. The basis of all faith is God's Word. It is God's promise to us. And that word is not just future-oriented. It's not just a faith based on the stuff to come that we outlined, right? Our, our future glorification, the bodily return of Christ when it comes future events. It's also a faith that goes backwards. You notice what he draws to their attention here in verse 3? He brings them all the way back to prior to the creation of man. He takes them right back to the creation of the whole universe. Do you see it? It is by faith that we believe that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was made out of things or was not made out of things which are visible. Creation ex nihilo, that is, out of nothing. It was spoken by the word of God, right? And and God spoke and, and it began it happened he called it into being no one was there to witness it there is no 
There is no way to prove how it was done. We must take it by faith upon the Word of God. And so our faith runs in both directions. It runs backwards to the creation of the very universe. It runs forward to its consummation. And it is always faith based upon the Word of God. By the way, this um, is one of the reasons I, I am very persuaded that the doctrine of evolution, or the, the false doctrine of evolution, put it that way, is uh, so devastating to the Christian church. The notion that, that somehow a, a world uh, that... that that began as a slime or, you know, however they want to do it and progressed forward or some eternal universe. It just cuts the faith out from under the Christian church. The writer here is very, very committed to the notion that the, that the creation is a faith-based notion based on the Word of God. It begins in Genesis 1. I think it's even safe to say if you can't handle Genesis 1, <coughs> that somehow your faith can't absorb Genesis 1 and what the Scripture has told you, how in the world can your faith handle what it says about the future? It has to run in both directions, backwards and forwards. And it is that kind of conviction that produces endurance. The faith that you have with regard to the creation of the universe is the same faith you need to have for the promises of the future because it's all based on the Word of God. So that is the essence of faith declared. It produces endurance, it is observable, and it is always based on the Word of God. Now the writer will begin to demonstrate it through examples. The rest of this chapter is basically one big, long illustration. It's got multiple parts to it, but it is indeed one big, long illustration. The examples of faith delineated. And I've got 12, I don't know what they are, 12 descriptive words, I guess that's what I'll call them, that, that sort of give you a handle to hang on to, the, to this extended illustration. And I was just uh, so fortunate to be able to <clears throat> get them to all work out <laughs> properly. Most of them jumped out. A few I had to work on a while. But I did this because uh, I think it just helps us put it together here. So who are these examples of faith? He begins with Abel in verse 4. Abel worshipped by faith. Notice what he says. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. God testifying about his gifts, and through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. His worship was a worship of faith. Both Cain and his brother, or excuse me, both Abel and his brother Cain. Did I say Cain earlier? Doesn't matter. Both Abel and his wicked brother Cain, that'll clarify it, right, came to worship God. Isn't that true? 
back in Genesis chapter 4, they both brought their sacrifices. But Cain and his sacrifice was rejected. Why? Well, it it is because by faith, Abel brought the prescribed sacrifice. His faith demonstrated itself in obedience in the bringing of the prescribed sacrifice. Cain did not. Abel's faith was demonstrated in his worship. Abel's faith demonstrated in his worship an obedient faith, an obedient worship, an acceptable worship. As the scripture said, God, with regard to Cain and his sacrifice, had no regard. But for Abel and his sacrifice, God was pleased because he brought the right sacrifice. His faith, his worship was an obedient faith, an obedient worship. Next, he musters for us another patriarch of antiquity, right? A man by the name of Enoch. Enoch shows up in Genesis chapter 5. Genesis 5, it's many times known as the graveyard of the Old Testament because it has a a refrain that's like the tolling of a bell that keeps ringing, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. But in the midst of all this death, which is leading through to to Genesis chapter 6, in which God announces he is to destroy the world because it is so wicked and corrupt, there is one man that stands out, isn't there? A man, Enoch. And he stands out because of the unusual way in which he departed this earth, right? Verse 5. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God took him up, for he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and he is a rewarder of those who seek him. The example the writer wants us to to see from Enoch's life is that he walked by faith. Enoch walked by faith. He lived, as I say, in the midst of a corrupt generation, a time of increasing levels of corruption and debauchery until God was so fed up with what he saw that he wiped it all clean in a worldwide flood. But out of the midst of this is this man, Enoch, a man who stands out. Now, the Bible actually in Genesis does not explicitly say that he, that he had such great faith. The writer draws that conclusion from what God, had, what God did with Enoch. The fact that he took him to be in his presence. And what he says here in verse 6 really explains it. He deduces Enoch's great faith by the very fact that God took him to be in his presence. Because he says, right, without faith it's impossible to please God. The fact that God snatched Enoch out of the middle of the corrupt generation is a demonstration of God's pleasure with him. And that God was pleased with him only, could be pleased with him only on the basis of his faith. Enoch lived a life of obedient faith, even though all the rest of his neighbors and extended family and everything else was corrupt. He walked by faith. Because without faith, it's impossible to please God. Enoch walked by faith. 
And that leads us to verse 7, to another of the patriarchs of antiquity, Noah, right? What do we know about Noah? He worked by faith. Noah worked by faith. Look, verse 7, by faith. Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence, prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness, which is according to faith. What's the point? The point of the matter is, is that by faith, Noah built a boat. And he took 120 years to do it. I think it's a fair assumption that that there was no idea of what a worldwide flood would look like. I think it's even a, a reasonable assumption that a boat the size of what Noah was called to build had never been built before. And God spoke to this man and he said, I want you to take 120 years of your life And I want you to build this massive boat because there is going to be a flood that is going to wipe the earth clean. And Noah's neighbors came and said, Noah, what are you doing? I'm building an ark. Some of you have heard the Bill Cosby thing, right? Rise. (laughs) I mean, think about it. We look backwards and and we know about the flood and it doesn't strike us in the same way. God called this man to invest 120 productive years of his life building something in, in anticipation of an event that had no, there was no experience of it in human history at all. It was by faith looking forward that he did such a thing. That's an obedient faith. That's a faith of endurance, isn't it? How many times do you think he was discouraged along the way? How many times did he wonder, did I hear it right? 120 years. I mean, most of us, we have trouble staying focused for 120 minutes. That's why we make the services around here an hour and a half, because most of us couldn't go two hours. 120 years. He worked by faith. And that leads us to the great patriarch Abraham. And in verse 8, Abraham wagered by faith. He wagered by faith. Let me show you what I mean by that. Verse 8, by faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. It says in Genesis 12 and verse 1, Abraham, go out to a land which I will show you. All right, gentlemen, here's the picture. You come home and you tell your wife, we're moving. We're leaving all the comfort of Ur of the Chaldees, a city, of, of uh, a pinnacle of civilization of its time, massive library unearthed in that area of the world a place of learning, a place of commerce, a place of comfort. Abraham was a city dweller. And you come home and you tell your wife, we're moving. Where are we going? I don't know. Well, did you buy a house? No, we're going to live in a tent. Right? 
We're going to live in a tent. We're going to trade what we have for a future promise to a land I will show you. That's a wager. That is a wager that can only be made by faith. Only by faith. An obedient faith. Right? An enduring faith. He had no idea where he was going. The final destination not given at the time of the move to a land which I will show you. Future tense. He didn't get a map. Right? That says, you know, X marks the spot. That's where you're going to be. You just follow me to a land which I will show you. So he entrusted himself completely to God's direction. Abraham wagered by faith. Next. Verses 9 and 10, Abraham wandered by faith. He wandered by faith. Look what it says. By faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise. He finally got there. But he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise, for he was looking for a city which has foundations whose architect and builder is God. He left his homeland, but he never found a permanent residence. He never had a a city to inherit, to move into. He lived in the promised land as a Bedouin in a tent. And he moved, you know, you read the account in Genesis, they moved. They moved here, they moved there. His son was born to him, Isaac, and through Isaac, Jacob, and they too lived the wandering life. They were never settled down in that land. They were never able to settle down in that land. How could he do that? What enabled this great man to be able to do that? The issue is, look again, it's by faith, right? By faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise. How? Well, because his eyes were not fixed on merely a patch of dirt in the Middle East. That was not his final hope and destiny. His eyes were eyes of faith that looked up and beyond to the God who had called him out of the pagan culture there in Mesopotamia. He was looking, it says, right for the city, which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. He was looking for heaven. He was looking for heaven. Now, he clearly understood God had promised him this land, that it would be for him and his descendants as an everlasting possession. So it's not that he didn't understand the land to be his gift, yet even though it had been given to him, he wandered in it for all of those years, and indeed it wouldn't be their possession for 400 more years after that, right? He could do that because he understood that important as the promise of the land was, it was not his final hope and destiny. His final hope and destiny was in God. That's a faith that sustains. That's a faith that endures. How many of you have moved from a major relocation? You know, I'm not talking about, you know, one town to the next. I'm talking about serious relocation. At least one state to another, across the country, around the world. Some of you, right? Difficult. Very difficult. It requires tremendous faith 
and God in his hand and leading you. It requires a faith of endurance. And that takes us to the sixth example of faith here, and that is they waited by faith, verses 11 and 12. By faith, even Sarah herself received the ability to conceive, even beyond the proper time of life, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore also there was born of one man, and him as good as dead at that, as many descendants as the stars of heaven in number, and as innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. They waited by faith. Anybody remember how old Abraham was when he was called out of Ur of the Chaldees? 75, that's right. Anybody remember how old he was when the son of promise was born? 100. How long did he wait? 25 years. For 25 years he waited. He and Sarah. For 25 years they waited for the birth of the promised son. That's faith-based waiting. Okay? Faith-based waiting. Now, someone say, well, what about that deal with Ishmael? Well, you know, how does that fit in? Even that demonstrates their faith in God's promise. Because it still shows that they believed that the promised one was coming through Abraham. Although they, they didn't know that Sarah would be the one to, to bird the child, the promise. They knew and they believed that it was Abraham. And so they, they took matters into their own hands. Yes, but it was through Abraham that they knew the promised one would come. Because of that folly, they continued to have to wait. Thirteen more years, if I remember correctly. Faith-based waiting. Have you ever had to wait for God to do something? Huh? You want God's, you know, you're pretty sure that this is what God wants for you, but you're having to wait? It's hard, isn't it? Can you imagine waiting 25 years? That's a faith that endures, isn't it? It's a faith that hangs on. A waiting faith. Next, we have the example of a welcomed faith. A welcomed faith. That's verses 13 through 16. All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance, and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, for those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would, have, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. He says, you know, Abraham and his descendants could have returned to Mesopotamia at any time. They could have concluded that it was all a big mistake. Maybe God didn't really say what we think he said. So let's go back home. Yet they did not leave the promised land, did they? They remained there. And the reason they did is because they were looking forward 
to the completion of the promise to spend eternity with God, even if they had to wander and wait for it. They welcomed, it says, the promise of God. They, they embraced the promise of God. They believed what God had told them. And so even though they had to remain as wanderers and strangers, they remained steadfast in their faith, believing that God had prepared something better for them. The writer says, therefore, God's not ashamed to be called their God. God is pleased with that kind of faith. He likes people that identify with him that express that kind of faith. You want God to be pleased and smile on you? Then you embrace him with that kind of faith. Conversely, I would say God is not pleased. God is even maybe ashamed of those who claim his name and yet show such a weak, vacillating faith. God was not ashamed to be called their God because they had embraced His promise to them. Eighth, it was a weighed faith. It was a weighed faith. What do I mean by that? Well, let me read it and explain it to you. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was offered up as his only begotten son. And it was he to whom it was said, In Isaac your descendants shall be called. He considered that God is able to raise men even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a tithe. What does that mean? What it means is that Abraham knew Isaac was the promised one. That it was through his son Isaac that the promised deliverer would come. He was convinced of it. How was he convinced of it? Because God had told him that. Look at verse 18. In Isaac, your descendants shall be called. Not in anyone else, but in Isaac, they will be called. And by the way, go to Mount Moriah and sacrifice him there to me as a burnt offering. Abraham had to weigh the word of God. He had to weigh it. He had the promise that Isaac would be the one through, through whom the descendants would flow. He had the obvious logic that says if you kill him, that's not possible. And so he, is, he has a conundrum, doesn't he? He's, he's caught in, a, in an, what appears to be an impossible situation. Isaac is the one. But if I kill him, how can Isaac be the one? So he weighed what he knew about God. And the writer tells us that his conclusion was what? That he would be resurrected. That Isaac would be resurrected. Now we may find that kind of hard to believe. And the reason we might find it kind of hard to believe is because for most of us, when we weigh the word of God, we find it light. Not heavy. We find the circumstances of life, the, the human logic and wisdom of the way we've been trained to be far more weighty, more heavy than the Word of God, right? We couldn't do that. That's impossible, is our conclusion frequently. You know, one of our core values is daring to minister by what? 
by faith. The only way you dare to minister by faith is, is that you find the Word of God to be weighty. More weighty than your circumstances. More weighty than human logic or wisdom. And you place your faith in the Word of God. Just like Abraham did. Offering his son Isaac and concluding that God would raise him from the dead. (coughs) Beyond that, notice... Verses 20 and following. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau, even regarding things to come. By faith, Jacob, as he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshiped, leaning on the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel and gave orders concerning his bones. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. In each and every one of these cases, these people, these patriarchs, weighed the word of God and found it to be so heavy that it overwhelmed that which was contrary, that which appeared impossible, that which in their circumstances would seem to prevent it from, from being able to come true. And so Isaac passed on his blessing, right? Regarding things to come. Regarding what? Regarding the Abrahamic covenant. I mean, at this point, does it really look like his descendants are going to be as numerable as the sand on the seashore, the stars in the sky? You know, the family tree is pretty thin at this moment, right? But by faith, he passes on the promise. And by faith, he says, by the way, the land is yours. Oh, yeah? But he passes it on. By faith, 21, Jacob blesses each of his sons, right? He blesses each of his sons. He passes it on to his sons, believing it to come true. By faith, Joseph says, when you leave Egypt, by the way, take my bones out with you. How did he know they were going to leave Egypt? He knew because God's word to Abraham back in Genesis 15, it said you would sojourn down there for 400 years until the time of the Amorites was complete and then you would be brought out and back into the promised land. He weighed the word of God And found it weighty. And so he said, when when you leave, by the way, make sure you don't leave me here. Take me with you. The scripture tells us when they went out in the Exodus, they did what? They took the bones of Joseph with them. Verse 23. Moses. Now this is an interesting statement here about Moses. It says he was hidden for three months by his parents. Because they saw he was a beautiful child. This is more than just parental love. If that's that's your understanding of what went on, it was just a mother couldn't bear to see her son taken from her or or exposed and and killed, as as the decree said, then you've missed the point. The point is that they saw something in this child that gave them hope and faith that he was to be a great one, that his destiny would be huge. Indeed, I think that they saw in him the deliverer. They could do the math. 
They knew that they had been in Egypt almost 400 years. There was something about this child that caused them to take all that they knew from the Word of God and amass it together on the great scale of life and say, this is weighty. This one cannot be exposed. This one we will defy the king over and we will conceal him. This one's our deliverer. That's faith. That is incredible faith in the face of overwhelming odds. It's a faith that endures. And that takes us to the ninth example of faith here. And that is Moses waved by faith. Moses waved by faith. Now, what in the world do I mean by that? I had to work this one a little. But I'll show you what I mean, and I think it's okay. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. I chose the word waved because that's what he did. He waved his rights to the throne. That's the point. Moses was in line for the kingdom of Egypt. He had been scooped out of the bulrushes, right? And brought into the home of Pharaoh and raised there in that home. He was being groomed to be the king. He had it all before him. And notice, look at verse 24 again. When he had grown up, he did what? He refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He waived his rights to the throne. Choosing instead to identify with the slave people. He gave it all up. Threw it all away. The passing pleasures of sin, by the way, talks about the sin would have been to to refuse his destiny as the deliverer and to take instead the the riches and glory and authority that would come to him as Pharaoh. The passing pleasures of sin, the, the position in the world, a pinnacle position. And he said, it's out of here. This Versus God, which will I take? He took God, didn't he? Giving up the palace in exchange for slavery. Considering, it says, the reproach of Christ. That is the the reproach that comes, I believe what he's talking about here, the Messiah, Christ, is is the the shame and and the humiliation that would come to the Messiah is the same that came to him. By identifying as a a leader of a slave people. Try to think of an analogy that might work for us. Be Bill Gates. Giving it all away to go live under the freeway in a cardboard box. How much would you sell yourself for? At what price is your commitment to Christ? Can it be bought? Moses couldn't be bought for all the treasures of Egypt. By faith, 
He chose God. Looking again to the reward, do you see it? To the reward. His eyes were by faith to the future. Ten. They went out by faith. They went out by faith. Verses 27 to 29. By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is unseen. By faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood so that he who destroyed the firstborn might not touch them. By faith they passed through the Red Sea as though they were passing through dry land. And the Egyptians, when they attempted it, were drowned. By faith, they went out. Moses took two and a half million slaves into the wilderness, knowing that Pharaoh would follow. Believing God would deliver. They kept the Passover by faith. They entered into the Red Sea by faith. They entered into the wilderness land where there, where there were no houses, there were no water supplies, there were no food sources, nothing. Entirely and completely dependent upon God. You know the story, right? It didn't take long before the people said, oh, I wish we were back in Egypt where they have onions and garlic and leeks. It would be an interesting combination, wouldn't it? But he took them out by faith. They went out to die in the wilderness, knowing they would be pursued by Pharaoh's armies, chopped to pieces. By faith, they went out. Eleven, they warred by faith. Verses 30 to 34. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. Stop right there. I mean, that's probably about the stupidest way that you can imagine to fight against a fortified city, isn't it? I mean, we've read the story, you know, so it seems like, well, of course that's what you'd do. You'd march around the city and its walls would fall down. You know, they sent the priests and the, the buglers around the, the deal, right? I mean, it's just not the way you conduct warfare. By faith, Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she had welcomed the spies in peace. And what more shall I say, for time will fail me. That's one of my favorite, you know, it's kind of like a preacher's line. What more should I say, for time will fail me, which means I have nothing more to say. If I, can t- <laughs> if I tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and of David and Samuel and the prophets who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. I mean, just think through the period of the judges and how often the way that God delivered these people, the way they conducted their war was so contrary to what logic would tell you to do. I mean, Gideon, you, you get rid of your army. I mean, who ever heard of, of weaning down an army like that? 
so that you've created odds that are, I remember right, they're like 10,000 to 1. Or some of these others. The way they conducted warfare, even, even into the days of Daniel, or of David, rather. What do we know about the history of warfare in, in Israel? What we know is that when they walked by faith, what happened? They were undefeatable. And when they turned from God, they were routed before their enemies. They conducted war by faith, and they conducted it on God's terms. That's an obedient faith. That's an enduring faith. It's a faith that runs contrary to the world's opinions. The world says make political allegiances, military allegiances, right? The Word of God says, it's my fight, trust me. They warred by faith. And lastly, they withstood by faith. They withstood by faith. The, the emphasis here now is he, he's concluding this long illustration changes. It changes really, you know, the emphasis goes from the achievements that these people have, have, uh, have to their credit to now basically the willingness of those to suffer for their faith. So he, he finishes it up and he says that by faith they withstood suffering. Women, verse 35, received back their dead by resurrection. Others were tortured, not accepting their release, in order that they might obtain a better resurrection. Others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonments. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins, in goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated. Men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. They suffered, yet they withstood. They stood firm in the midst of that suffering by faith, looking for the resurrection to come, looking for God to make true on His promises. They withstood all kinds of suffering. What's the point to the original recipients of this letter? It's simple, right? He's, he's calling them to the same thing. He's saying, by faith, stand firm. You're not alone in this. Those that have gone before you or the people of God have experienced the same kinds of things and worse. Hang tough. Endure. By faith. Accept it. What's he saying to us? He's telling us by faith we too need to be ready to suffer if that's what we're called for. If God has appointed suffering in our lives, then we by faith must endure. Not a comfortable message, not a message that goes over well in America, but a message we need to hear nonetheless. The people of God have always suffered. We live in a bubble, a historical bubble in which suffering is alien and foreign to us. But we don't know when the bubble will burst. But we do know this, that our brothers and sisters in Christ throughout the world are suffering right now. By faith, they endure. So 12 examples here. 12 examples of what faith looks like. And then finally, he finishes it off with 
what I'm calling the expectation of faith delayed. The expectation of faith delayed. And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Stop and let that sink in. They went through all that stuff, and they never got what was promised to them. They went their whole life walking by faith, enduring all kinds of hardship, and they never got what was promised. The Messiah never came. The one promised in Genesis 3.15 and scooped up in the Abrahamic covenant never came. They died still looking future. Why? Because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us they should not be made perfect. What is he saying? He's saying that they had to wait because God was not yet ready to send the Messiah. And when he finally sent the Messiah in fulfillment of the promise and of the Abrahamic covenant that we all together now experience what had been promised. That is, release from our sin. The power of Satan broken. He shall bruise you on the heel, right? You shall bruise him on the head. They had to wait because the time wasn't yet right. In the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman born under the law. These saints of old died still looking future. What's the point for you and me? Well, we live on the other side of the cross, don't we? The new covenant has come, right? The the prophecy of Genesis 3.15 has been fulfilled. The portion of the Abrahamic covenant has now been fulfilled when the land is still not yet Israel's. The nation has not yet repented and turned to him, but the spirit has been given, right? The law now resides where? Inside our hearts. The spirit has taken up residence within us. So we have received the fulfillment of what they were looking for, yet it is still not all the way done, is it? We know a lot more than they did. We have the full revelation of God. But we're still looking forward to. There is still an expectation of faith delayed for you and me. Christ has not yet returned for his church to take us home. We're still looking and waiting for that. So if these saints of old could endure by faith and wait the way they waited dying without ever receiving what had been promised, cannot you and I, by faith, based on the greater revelation of what we know to be true, endure? The answer has to be what? Yes, we must. We must endure. By faith, we must endure. I can't think of a stronger chapter to call the church to a life of patient, faithful, obedient endurance. A commodity that is sadly lacking in Christianity in the 21st century. Let's pray. Our Father, as we have gone through this extended illustration, 
Perhaps one or more of those descriptions of faith have resonated. With 12 of them, our Father, it, certainly we can find ourselves in there somewhere. We do pray that your Holy Spirit would press down on our heart that area in which you have spoken to us, that area perhaps where our faith is weak, where our faith is not obedient, where our faith does not endure, and that you would enable us to change. Our Father, a prayer is on all our behalf that we might emulate the model of those who have gone before and that by faith we might cling to the promise that Christ will again come and that He will establish His kingdom here on earth. And in the meantime, He's left us a task to do, and that is to spread the gospel. Let us be obedient, let us be faithful, and let us endure in the days that remain, we pray in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.